0: Hey there, my name is Allie, and welcome to A Noble Earthquake, a podcast about California history. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much to everyone who has left me a review on iTunes so far. They really mean a lot to me. I would love to get some more, less so for the stars, more so for the comments. Uh, Feedback is really going to help me get better at doing this, at giving you guys more information that you might want, focusing on subjects that you might be interested in, so please be sure to leave me a review. You can also, you know, tweet me or whatever, but iTunes would be great. I'm going to be setting up a Facebook page for the podcast soon, so hopefully that will pull in some more listeners and even more feedback, which is really what I need. So this episode definitely grew and evolved while I was researching the topic, much like the last one. I know the title might be a little deceiving, but it's definitely still the summer episode I promised. Um, it was originally going to be about the history of San Francisco's famous ice cream treat, the it's it. Uh I remember the first time that I had one thinking, like, okay, it's an ice cream sandwich. Surely this will be like all other ice cream sandwiches, oh, was I wrong? And even just writing the script for this episode made me really, really want one, and I might end up going to get one after I'm done. Um, But how did this episode evolve, you might ask? How could the history of an ice cream sando bloom into something so much bigger? My friends, this is the magic that is history. Everything is connected. Our story starts back in 1884 when the Ocean Beach Pavilion opened along the Great Highway in San Francisco. The pavilion was a great spot to escape the bustle of the city and come to the seaside for dancing, concerts, and general revelry. By the 1890s, there were three streetcar lines carrying city dwellers out to Ocean Beach where people could not only enjoy the pavilion, but now the Cliff House and Sutro's Bath and Museum. Originally opening in 1863, The first cliff house was built by real estate mogul Charles Butler, a clapboard building that was meant for a more wealthy clientele. Apparently, the toll road alone was enough to keep many folks at home, and the menu prices were sky high. This first cliff house expanded in 1868, but eventually, the improvements in public transit meant that a more diverse class of folks, you know, like the 99%, could visit. Eventually... The Cliff House became known less for its world-class visitors and more for its gambling and prostitutes. Between 1881 and 1883, Adolfo Sutro purchased the Cliff House and renovated the space. He added educational displays similar to what would eventually be on view at his bathhouse and museum. In 1887, the ship Parallel exploded on the rocks nearby, damaging part of the house but otherwise leaving the building completely unscathed it wasn't until 1894 that the first cliff house burned to the ground destroyed by a kitchen fire insert sad trombone music here but this did not stop sutro his second cliff house was much more outrageous in architecture it was ornate and victorian with just a hint of gingerbread house thrown in for good measure his cliff house featured restaurants art galleries and lunch parlors and it even survived the 1906 earthquake It did not, however, survive the 1907 kitchen fire. This house is cursed. Adolfo Sutro had died by this point, but his daughter Emma Merritt took up the cause to bring back the cliff house once again, though not without some thoughtful architectural redesign. Built in 1909, the third cliff house, which is the one that remains standing to this day, is neoclassical in design and a very, very understated one compared to its predecessor. Adolfo Sutro also developed the Sutro Baths uh, in 1894, the same year the first cliff house burned to the ground. Sutro was interested in natural history and marine studies, so what better than to create an ocean aquarium and natural history museum right on the water? As a philanthropist, Sutro's goal was to provide inexpensive educational and recreational opportunities to the larger San Francisco population. The space even included sculpture galleries and artifacts from around the world. And this is really why he um, took it upon himself when he purchased the cliff house to renovate it and make it a much more welcoming space for everybody involved. Soon after opening the aquarium, Sutro added the public bathhouses. Each pool was a different temperature and the water was pumped in directly from the Pacific Ocean. He included slides, trapeze, and diving boards for the enjoyment of his visitors. And eventually he added an ice skating rink. The baths, however, began to decline in popularity during the Great Depression. So we're going to jump back a little bit now to 1912, when Arthur Loof and John Friedel came to Ocean Beach and created Loof's Hippodrome, which housed a beautifully constructed carousel designed by Loof's father back in Rhode Island. At this point, Ocean Beach Pavilion was growing and evolving into something much bigger. And by 1922, Loof and Friedel had added the Big Dipper roller coaster, whose sister coaster, the Giant Dipper, still runs at the Santa Cruz boardwalk, and the Shoots at the Beach water ride. And Shoots at the Beach seems to become the name of the amusement park around this time, but the timeline of when each of the names changes is kind of murky as history continues kind of creates. Um, but it would also appear that, according to some accounts, while Loof and Friedel added the carousel, Adolfo Sutro, who just keeps coming back, uh, he brought the ferris wheel, an indoor maze, and a haunted swing ride to shoots at the beach. So while Loof and Friedel are creating their thrill rides, the brothers George and Leo Whitney begin developing a photo finishing service that would allow parkgoers to take home their park photos the same day, as opposed to having to wait several days for their photos to be developed. Once the photo finishing was perfected in 1922, the Whitney's opened up shop at Shoots at the Beach, and this was their first concessionary at the park. As the amusement park gained popularity, George and Leo gained in real estate holdings. Uh, They started buying up failing concessionaries along the Midway, and adding more rides to the park itself. By 1926, George Whitney was the general manager of the park, which at this point he renamed Whitney's Playland at the Beach. It's around this time in 1928 that George Whitney opened a concession stand selling ice cream sandwiched between two oatmeal cookies dipped in chocolate. Those that live in the San Francisco Bay Area, you already know what I'm talking about, but for the rest of you, this was the birth of the Itzit. For decades, uh, Playland at the Beach was the only place you could indulge in one of the frozen treats. In 1929, the Whitney's opened Topsy's Roost Restaurant, which operated at the base of Sutro Heights. Topsy's was a popular chicken dinner house and night club. Uh, I found a scan of one of the souvenir menus from 1930, and it stated that the restaurant was open from 11 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day except Mondays. There's no booze because it's the middle of Prohibition. But you could get a boxed lunch if you were planning on picnicking nearby. And it's brilliant that they created souvenir menus that you could take home because your kid's going to take it home. It's got a goofy rooster on it. It looks like it pops out and you can make a little toy. But then you're going to see it every once in a while or your kids are going to see it every once in a while and you're going to be like, oh, we should go back. Let's go back. So ingenious marketing ploy on the part of the Whitney's. Uh, By 1934, even though it was the middle of the Great Depression, Playland at the Beach now extends for three blocks along the Great Highway, and George Whitney owned everything from Point Lobos to Fulton Street. The Midway consisted of 14 rides, 25 concessions, and five restaurants. And you know what property George Whitney bought in 1937? (laughs) The Cliff House. That's when the camera obscura was added to the building because he wanted it to be part of the park. Business boomed at Playland at the Beach during the war years. Off-duty servicemen would bring their dates as an escape from the real world. Christopher Newton grew up in the neighborhood and remembers visiting Playland often. He wrote for the Western Neighborhoods Association, quote, Everything about it was interesting. I liked to watch the sailors plinking at mechanical ducks paddling in a line across the green waters of the shooting gallery. I liked to watch the tough teenagers smashing baseballs into milk pyramids. It looked so easy, but no one could ever make them roll off the stands. And he then goes on to describe desperately wanting a candy apple and being severely disappointed when he bit into one to discover that it was actually just a real apple covered in sugar. And he also described cotton candy as like a Brillo pad, which I agree with you about the candy apple, but we we have a disagreement here on the wonder that is cotton candy. (laughs) George Whitney purchased the Sutro Baths in 1952, but he decided to close the bathhouses and keep the ice rink in the Natural History Museum open. At this point, though, interest had kind of begun to decline in the bathhouse and everything else up at Sutro, and not even the ice rink could really keep it afloat. By the 1960s, developers wanted to replace the baths with condos, And they almost succeeded, but a fire in 1966 that completely destroyed the entire property removed any interest in building on the land. But luckily in 1973, both the Sutro Baths and the Cliff House became part of Golden Gate National Park and both have received a good amount of attention and protection from the National Park Service. So that's fantastic. (laughs) Time was not friendly to Playland at the beach. Topsy's Restaurant became Skateway and then the Slot Car Raceway. The Big Dipper roller coaster had been closed down in 1955 due to new San Francisco building codes, and this really signaled the beginning of the end. After George Whitney died in 1958, his son George Jr. came home from Anaheim, where he was working with Walt Disney to develop Disneyland so he could assume control of the park. But by the 1960s, Playland at the Beach had really lost its shine and attendance plummeted. The end of the park came in 1972 when developers bought up the land. And now a Safeway sits where the diving bell once was. <laughs> so you can go visit the Safeway, I guess. You go grocery shopping and be like, there's an amusement park down here somewhere. Um, it's important to note that the Whitney's operated this park, Playland at the Beach, for over 40 years, which is incredible, especially when you consider that Playland really got its start during the Great Depression. Um, George Whitney really recognized that he needed to keep the prices of rides and concessions low enough for families to come to the park and just forget about their problems for a few hours while they navigated through the funhouse or lost their hat riding the Big Dipper, uh, much like how a lot of movie houses during the Depression Got a lot of popularity because it was so cheap to go see a movie and you could just kind of forget about everything for two hours. Going to these amusement parks like Playland really just helped people, you know, relax, have a good time with their family, not worry so much. And then at the end of the day, you went home, your kids were happy, you were happy. Your kids would probably be really tired and go to bed super fast. Um, it was just all around a fantastic place to be able to go from all accounts that I've read of visiting Playland. And there are still pieces of Playland throughout San Francisco and the Bay Area to this day that you can go visit. Um, The original Laughing Sal, which is a nightmare-inducing laughing clown that used to greet guests at the entrance of the funhouse, she is now at the Santa Cruz boardwalk again along with the Big Dipper's sister coaster. And the backup Laughing Sal can now be seen at the Musée Mechanique on Pier 39 in San Francisco, along with many of the Penny Arcade games that once lived at Playland. Uh, Loof's Carousel took an extended vacation in Long Beach, but then it came back to San Francisco and it's now operated and maintained by the Children's Creativity Museum in Yerba Buena Gardens. And it's only $4 for two rides. And I think it's $3 if you pay admission to the museum. It's housed in this beautiful glass... Um, house building hippodrome, I guess. Um, you can see it from most places in your Buena. Um, it just looks stunning, and you can actually, if you want to support the preservation and the continued protection of the carousel, you can basically buy. You can you can adopt one of the carousel horses. Um, And I can link to that on the show notes page because I think it's really cool. Kind of gives you the opportunity to like feel like you own a piece of the museum, which as a person with museum background, I think that's one of the better ways to get people involved in your museum is when they feel like they really have um, a reason to donate beyond like being a member. Anyway, I digress. Artist Ray Beldner he erected statues around the outer Richmond district that recall these iconic symbols of playland like the rooster from Topsy's Roost and a silhouette of Laughing Sal, and you can see those when you walk around Um, I will link to a map that shows you a couple of them. And if you're ever in the Outer Sunset, it's not really the same area that Playland was in, I would recommend checking out Playland at 43rd Avenue. It's named after the ill-fated park, um, but this is an outdoor community space. It hosts community gardens, concerts, and there's free yoga classes on Sunday. I've been to them. You should go. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you can enjoy a piece of Playland history literally anytime you would like because its, it's can be found in most grocery stores and convenience stores. And I really am going to go get one as soon as I'm done recording. So that's going to do it for this episode of A Noble Earthquake. Thank you again so much for joining me. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can leave me a note on Twitter at NobleEarthquake, shoot me an email at anobileearthquake at gmail.com, leave a comment on the show notes on my personal blog, Or again, you can leave me a review on iTunes. As usual, the links can be found in the show notes, which I will post on Twitter. Um, I want to give a special shout out to the Western Neighborhoods Association. Their website, Outsidelands.org, and the oral history projects that they have done were immensely helpful with researching for this episode. And they have their own podcast, so check it out. And of course, the intro-outro music is by Marcos Bolanos. Once again, thank you for joining me.